0: Detectives headed over to the funeral home to see if maybe they could still find some type of evidence on Sister Tadea's body, and that's when they discovered that her neck had severe bruising. It was clear to them that something bad had happened to her. She didn't just get this bruise from just falling down and accidentally hitting herself. Somebody had strangled her. Hey everyone, welcome back to What Happened with Jackie Flores. I'm Jackie, and I hope you guys are doing super, super well. So welcome to today's episode. Today, we're going to be talking about a truly insane, disturbing, and just disappointing case. We're going to be talking about the murder of Sister Tadea Benz. She was a nun, and on the eve of Halloween night, someone broke into her convent and murdered her. What's truly shocking is that her killer claimed that he was innocent. He told the media, he told his family, he told detectives, he told everyone that he didn't do this and that they had the wrong person. At the time, the public didn't really believe him, but now people are starting to question this. Was the public wrong and did an innocent man pay for this murder? I've never heard about this case before and just digging deep into the research was so overwhelming. I felt like I kept going deeper and deeper into different holes and there's just so much information to go over. So let's jump right in and let's talk about what happened to Sister Tadea Benz. Sister Tadea Benz was born on September 21st, 1905 in St. Gallen, Switzerland. Now, there really isn't that much information on Sister Tadea's early life, but what we do know is that she was Catholic and she decided to give her life to God and become a nun. In 1932, Sister Tadea immigrated from Colombia to the United States, and in 1937, she became a U.S. citizen. She became a nun at the St. Francis Convent and was now living in Amarillo, Texas. Now, a little bit about Amarillo, Texas. It is the 14th most populated city in Texas, and as of now, Their crime rate is pretty high. When this case took place, it was in the 80s, so investigations weren't really that thorough back then and there were actually a lot of unsolved murders and just suspects that were never caught. During this time, the community of Amarillo was on high alert because there was something sinister going on in the town. On July 8th, 1981, someone broke the window of 77-year-old Narnie Bryson's home and snuck into her house and murdered her. She was found beaten, raped, and had been strangled by a telephone cord. A white t-shirt and black curly hair were found inside her house, and her killer was still on the loose. People in the community were shocked by this. I mean, how could someone do this to an old lady? Why would someone do this? So that's just a quick backstory of what was happening in Amarillo, Texas at the time that Sister Tadeo was living there. She was currently 76 years old, and she was one of the more senior nuns at the convent. Out of all of the prayers and hymns that all the nuns would sing at the convent, Sister Tadea's favorite prayer was the morning prayer, as laid out by the Liturgy of the Hours. In Catholicism, the Liturgy of the Hours is the prayer of the whole people of God. They are the official set of prayers marking the hours of each day and sanctifying the day with prayer. Sister Judea believed that although they were divided by continents and time zones, the structure provided by the Liturgy of the Hours was something that helped nuns of all different cultures from all parts of the world feel like they were part of the wider network of faith. So, she was extremely devoted to her religion and just really appreciated the community that the church had given her. She also had a pretty set morning routine. She would wake up at 5 o'clock in the morning every single morning, make herself a cup of coffee, and then she would go visit the convent's cat named Chloe. She absolutely loved this cat, and it's just so cute that that was part of her morning routine. It just really shows what a loving person she was. When she had her coffee and played with the cat, she would walk down to the chapel to attend the morning prayer at around 6.30 in the morning morning, which, as I mentioned, was her favorite prayer. She would never miss this prayer time. Even as she was getting older, she would always make time for this. That was until October 31st, 1981. That day was Halloween. All the nuns woke up early that morning to start their day and attend their regular morning prayer session. All the nuns arrived on time, but they noticed that Sister Tadea wasn't there, which was really odd because this was her favorite prayer time, so where was she? A fellow nun named Sister Angela was wondering what was going on. She wondered if maybe Sister Tadea had gotten sick, or if she had slept in, or if something had happened since, as we know, she never missed this morning prayer session. About an hour later, at around 7.30 in the morning, the service had finally ended and Sister Angela was still wondering what had happened to Sister Tadea. So she gathered up some of the other nuns and they decided to head upstairs to the second floor, which is where Sister Tadea's bedroom was. You know, they just wanted to check in on her to see if everything was okay or if she needed anything. So they arrived to her room and they realized that the door was completely closed, which was unusual because Sister Tadea was known for always keeping her door wide open or at least leaving it cracked open. She normally left the door open because she was hard of hearing. So when the morning alarm would go off, she liked to keep the door open in that way she could hear it but now it was fully closed they opened the door and that's when they discovered sister tadea lying on the ground naked with her arms outstretched by her side upon a closer look they noticed that there was some blood surrounding her head As soon as the nuns saw this, they were stunned. I mean, this was just something that they weren't expecting. They thought that maybe Sister Tadea had slept in or that she was sick or that maybe she just like wasn't in the mood to get up that day. They didn't think that they would walk in and find her dead. One of the nuns actually tried to revive her, but that's when they realized that her body had gone cold and that she no longer had a pulse. Sister Tadea was dead. Now, Sister Angela went into complete shock when she discovered her friend's body. She just didn't know what to do, and she just couldn't even look at the body or be near the body. This was her beloved friend and a fellow nun. In convents, nuns pretty much only have each other to lean on, so they all had really close relationships, and one of their own practically family members, had now passed away. After taking a moment to collect themselves, the nuns tried to piece together what could have possibly happened. They weren't really thinking that a murder had occurred. You know, they weren't thinking that something sinister had happened. They mainly assumed that Sister Tadea had woken up on time to go to the morning prayer, but had accidentally tripped fallen down and then hit her head on the floor. You know, Sister Tadeo was in her 70s, so she was older and it's totally possible for her to have lost her balance as she was getting out of bed and then just hit her head, which led to her death. Besides her age, the nun saw the amount of blood that was around her head and they honestly figured that maybe she had suffered a hemorrhage and that's where that blood had come from. They truly believe that this was just an accident and this was just really unexpected and heartbreaking for everyone. Yes, Sister Tadea was older, but she was in good health and she really didn't have any major illnesses that were affecting her. So it was just really shocking that she had passed away overnight. A group of the nuns just took a moment to stand there and talk about what a good life Sister Tadea had and how she had devoted her life to Christ and now it was time for her to go to heaven and reside by God's right hand. They said a prayer for her and then they wrapped Sister Tadea's body in sheets to protect her modesty since she was naked and then they started cleaning up the blood spots on the floor. Once they cleaned up a bit, they left the bedroom and started making plans as to where her funeral would be held and what was going to happen next. At no point did the nuns believe that something bad had happened to Sister Tadea or that she could have been murdered. Due to this, they didn't call the police or even report her death to them. Everyone was so busy planning Sister Tadea's funeral when at around 8.30 in the morning, Another nun named Sister Florentine walked into the community room and stumbled upon an odd scene. One of the windows in this room had been broken, the glass had been shattered, and the screen covering the window had been cut, and it was found outside on the pavement. This made everyone think that someone had tried to break into the convent, but who? The nuns were freaked out by this, so they immediately called the Amarillo police. They realized that they had been so caught up in the shock of Sister Tadea's death that no one had even noticed that there was broken glass in the community room. Now, they called the police because they thought someone had broken in, not because they thought that this was related to Sister Tadea's death in any way. When asked about it, Sister Florentine said, quote, In my mind, I thought of it, but I took it for granted, as did the others, that she died a natural death. Sister Martinez also spoke out and said that she thought something was off because of the closed bedroom door, but because of her shock, she just wasn't able to think more about it. The Amarillo Police Department arrived to investigate the break-in at around 9 o'clock in the morning. At this point, the nuns had already moved Sister Tadea's body out of her bedroom, and the body was literally on its way to the local funeral home. So again, they did not mention this death to the police at all. In fact, the only way that police found out about this is because while they were investigating the broken window, they overheard some of the nuns talking about Sister Tadea's death and police were like, huh? Like someone broke into your convent last night and then this morning one of your nuns was found dead? They started to realize that this probably had a connection. The police asked the nuns where Sister Tadea's body was just to make sure that they could rule out any foul play or possible connection to the break-in, but that's when they were informed that her body had already been cleaned and embalmed at the funeral home. Detectives headed over to the funeral home to see if maybe they could still find some type of evidence on Sister Tadea's body, and that's when they discovered that her neck had severe bruising. It was clear to them that something bad had happened to her. She didn't just get this bruise from just falling down and accidentally hitting herself somebody had strangled her in addition to that it looked like she had other bruising and injuries so police took her body into their custody from the funeral home and had an autopsy conducted by pathologist dr ralph erdman according to dr erdman sister tadea had multiple injuries including a large black eye a crushed larynx, contusions to the head, and she also had knuckle marks on her head, stab wounds from her upper left thigh to her chest, and excoriation, which means the formation of lesions on the skin because of trauma, and she also had abrasive injuries to the front and back. But her cause of death was actually manual strangulation that resulted in cardiac arrest due to cerebral anoxia. The injuries to the front of her neck were found to be consistent with a knife. Now, this information was shocking to everybody. I mean, how did the embalmer not notice these incredibly serious injuries and immediately call the police? It's understandable in a way that the nuns didn't realize because they were in absolute shock. They're also not doctors, and I don't think they were really analyzing Sister Tadea's body. They just saw her lying on the ground and had blood around her and then immediately just wrapped her up and just assumed that she had fallen and hit her head. But it's just really shocking how the funeral home didn't see these abrasions and immediately call the police. Now, besides receiving these horrific injuries, the autopsy also discovered that Sister Tadea had been raped. Dr. Ralph Erdman had found signs of external bleeding and internal trauma in her vaginal area. He was also able to find the presence of semen and other prostate secretions in the area, but no test was done to determine the blood type or to find any dna of her rapist now this is something that we will get into a little bit later in the video but from this moment people believe that the way the dna was handled in this case was incredibly poor i mean first of all a lot of the killer's dna had already been cleaned off since sister Tadea's body was in the process of being cleaned for the funeral So a lot of the evidence had already been wiped away. And on top of that, Dr. Ralph never did the test to find the rapist's blood type or their DNA. So it just seems like the DNA was definitely not handled correctly. Now, DNA testing wasn't really that advanced back then, so they couldn't test the DNA, but they saved what they could. Now, thankfully, they were able to recover some hair from her body that did not belong to her. And they also found some hair inside of her mouth, which they believe belonged to the killer. When the rest of the convent found out about what had actually happened to Sister Tadea, they were even in more shock. I mean, they were stunned to learn that she had passed away from an accidental fall. But now that they had found out that she had been murdered and raped, they were completely heartbroken and just couldn't believe that someone could commit such a heinous crime and attack a harmless elderly nun in her sleep. After going to look at her body, detectives came back to the convent and officially declared her bedroom as a crime scene and sealed it off. They immediately began going around the bedroom to see what type of evidence they could find. And they actually took her bed linens and her light blue nightgown, which had a little bit of blood on it for closer inspection. They took a look underneath her bed and that's when they found a kitchen knife. On this knife, they were able to find some finger and palm prints on the knife blade and on the handle. Now, there was no blood on the knife itself, but there was a streak of blood on the bed sheets that could have been formed by a similar knife. They took a look at Sister Tadea's bed and they discovered that there were fingerprints on her headboard and also on the broken window in the community room. Now, remember how I said that there was some hair discovered inside her mouth? Well, detectives found more of that same curly black hair in the area where her body was discovered. They also found a men's white V-neck T-shirt that had been crumpled up and they also found a sock. According to reports, they also found some hair inside a vacuum because again, the nuns had started to clean up the scene because they just thought this was an accident, so they had vacuumed up some hairs that were in the room. Now, detectives looked underneath the broken window, and that's when they discovered some shoe prints left behind that police collected. Along with this, police also found a second knife, a forgecraft steak knife in the convent driveway, and they picked up fingerprints from that as well. So once detectives gathered all of this evidence, the officers started interviewing the nuns and the neighbors who live nearby the convent to see if they had seen anyone in the convent driveway the night of October 30th or early morning on October 31st. It's just really shocking how nobody heard the window breaking, nobody heard the killer coming through the first floor, making their way up the stairs to Sister Tadea's bedroom and killing her. You know, I do wonder if she fought back, if she screamed or if she was sleeping when all of this happened and this just took her by surprise, which is why no one heard this. So one of the neighbors had been awake during this time and he admitted to seeing a youngish looking man running away from the convent that night. One of the security guards for the convent, it's crazy that there was a security guard there that didn't catch this. Said that he was patrolling the grounds that night and at around midnight he saw a man hiding behind a tree. He said that this man had afro-style black curly hair and that he was possibly Cuban. The security guard did try to approach this man to see, you know, what they were doing, but the man took off running and the security guard wasn't able to catch up to him. One of the nuns came forward and said that at around 2:30 in the morning, the convent had gotten a phone call and she picked Picked it up the person on the other line said that he wanted to speak to a priest about his sexual desires and you know she said that this person had a very heavy spanish accent and that they were a male then told this guy that the priest couldn't help him right now because it was late at night but this guy kept insisting that she could help him discuss his sexual desires so this phone call was just a little bit weird I mean who calls at 2 30 in the morning to talk about this now as i mentioned at the start of the video the people in amarillo were on edge because on july 8th 77 year old Narni cox bryson had been raped and murdered inside her home she had been strangled by a telephone cord and she had also suffered from broken bones as a result of the attack well detectives started to wonder if maybe these cases were connected. I mean, both Narni and Sister Tadeo were in their 70s. The attacker got into both residences by breaking a window and cutting the screen covers, a white T-shirt and black curly hair were found at both crime scenes. Witnesses reported a Hispanic man in the vicinity of both murders, and both of them were associated with religious groups assisting Cuban refugees. There were just too many pieces connecting each other, and the convent and Narni's home We're in a similar part of town, so Police honestly started to believe that Narni's murder could have had something to do with the murder of Sister Tadea. The district attorney, along with a handful of other investigators thought the same thing. They felt like the cases were, quote, too similar to not have been committed by the same man. The murders occurred within blocks of each other in the same part of town as 10 other rape victims. So because there had been 10 break-in and sexual assaults in the area in the last few months, the police and the DA really wanted to solve these cases as as fast as possible so that the community could feel safe again. I mean, people were freaking out at this point. Not only was an elderly woman found murdered and raped, but now a nun, and on Halloween, it was truly frightening and just nobody felt safe. So, between November 1st and November 9th, police investigation was heavily directed towards finding the man in relation to both murders. According to local reports, at the time, the police were rounding up and interviewing some Cuban refugees who had arrived in Amarillo in 1980 by a Mariel lift in relation to the murder. Now, this was a result of the mass exodus from Cuba after a downturn in their economy. Some of these incoming refugees were mental patients and criminals. Police spoke with over 100 people from this boat that ended up in the area. They took blood samples and fingerprints as well as interviewed all of them. All these men also had their U.S. criminal records looked into and two of the men had records. These men were Fernando Flores and Leoncio Perez Rueda. Now what really caught police's attention is that two weeks after Narni's murder, so in July, both men were caught spying into an elderly woman's home and Leoncio was actually caught fully naked looking into this woman's home. I mean, it's just so disturbing. Leoncio also seemed like a good suspect for Sister Tadea and Narni's cases because the same night Sister Tadea was murdered, a 77-year-old woman was also attacked somewhere between 8.30 p.m. and 1.30 a.m. in her home. A friend had discovered her on October 31st, Halloween, at 2 p.m. And she ended up being rushed to the hospital and surviving. And this woman's home was on the exact same street that Leoncio lived on. Unfortunately for investigators, she could not remember her attack, so she couldn't describe the attacker. However, the police truly felt like Leoncio did do this. I mean, he had literally been caught fully naked, looking into a woman's home he lived on the same street as her i mean they just felt like there was just too many connections now fernando was also looked into since he had also been caught spying into an elderly woman's home and he had his blood and his hair taken into evidence and investigators actually sent this to the fbi a line of suspects was done and the security guard who i mentioned earlier actually named fernando as the man he saw that night The police were confident that they had caught the killer. However, that confidence was short-lived when on November 7th, investigators received the DNA results from the FBI, and they stated that they did not get a match to Fernando. So, he wasn't the killer. Besides the DNA not matching, none of the fingerprints found at the crime scene matched Fernando. At this point, the district attorney had to publicly apologize for being overly optimistic about catching the killer so quickly. They let Fernando go and they were actually really embarrassed by this. Since they had made such a big mistake, they were now under even more pressure to find the person who did this. They couldn't mess up again. That would make them look so bad, so they knew that they had to catch someone soon. Detectives kind of felt stuck. They didn't really have any other leads to go off of to find Sister Tadea's killer, so they circled back to the 77 year old woman who had survived her attack, and they actually hypnotized her to see if that could bring her memory back of what her attacker looked like. But this was a failure. She was still not able to remember any details about her attack. Police were back to the drawing board and they were having a really tough time putting the pieces together of this case. That was until they received a tip from a very random place. A woman named Inez, also known as Bubbles, had spoken to the Amarillo Daily News about a vision she had where she saw Sister Tadea's killer. Now, Inez was a self-proclaimed psychic and she described the killer as a teenage male, slender with olive skin, about 5'11", and she said that this teenager had an Abe Lincoln face with a large nose and ears. She also added that he wore an afro-type wig during the attack and that his face was half white, half black. He was also somewhat muscular and lived in a white frame house with dirty hardwood floors on the same street as a convent, Northeast 18th, and that the house faced the convent. The psychic also added that there was a connection to the name Mr. Clyde. Now, she didn't report this to the police. She just reported this vision to the Amarillo Daily News and All of these details just seem really specific i mean the details about the hardwood floors of the killer how their house faces the convent i mean how did the psychic know these details and where did she get this information from again inez did not contact the police with this information and she honestly wanted to find the exact house herself and in a way catch the killer she teamed up with another fellow psychic named Alan, and they started searching the neighborhood on the same street as a convent until they finally found the house that matched Inez's description. The house was on 4000 Northeast 19th Street. When they walked up to it, they saw that there was a doghouse in the yard that had the name Mr. Clyde written on it, just like Inez had predicted. Now when police heard about this tip, they were kind of shocked, but at the same time, they were kind of grasping at straws at this point. So they actually decided to investigate the house that the psychic had mentioned. I guess they thought that there was no harm in checking this out. I don't really know how I feel about psychics getting involved in murder investigations, but police just wanted to follow through with this. Detectives pull up to this house and they discover that a 17-year-old teenage boy named Johnny Frank Garrett lived there and that detectives already knew about him. It turns out that Johnny had a record for burglarizing homes in this neighborhood. In fact, even the district attorney said that he was familiar with who Johnny was, and the Amarillo police detective, Walt Yerger, said that he had previously arrested him on a burglary case. Now, let's talk about what Johnny looked like. He had sandy brown hair, not black and curly, which was the kind that had been found at the crime scene. But remember, the psychic did suggest that the murderer was wearing an Afro wig when he committed the murder, so police thought That's just what Johnny must have done. Now, when police first showed up to Johnny's house, he actually wasn't home at the time, so they weren't able to speak to him. The only reason that they knew he lived there is because he had a record and because his address was registered. Since he did have a record, his fingerprints were already in the system, so they decided to run them against the fingerprints found on Sister Tadea's headboard and from the knife that was found. On November 9th, Detective Walt learned that Johnny's fingerprints were a match for the fingerprints found in Sister Tadea's room. Now, moving over to Johnny's perspective, again, he was not home when police first arrived, but as soon as he learned that detectives were looking for him, he actually reached out to the police and told them that he would go speak to them on November 10th, the next morning, to talk about what was going on. However, detectives did not want to wait another day to arrest Johnny because they truly believed that they had found their killer. That same day on November 9th at around 5.15 p.m., detectives went back to Johnny's house and they knocked on the door. Johnny's mom, Charlotte, was sitting down in the living room watching Monday Night Football when all of a sudden she heard the knock. She opened the door and saw a handful of police officers standing there. There was also a couple of detectives as well as a camera crew. Charlotte says that she was just shocked by the scene. I mean, she was really confused as to what was going on, so she asked the group, What's happening? And that's when detectives told her that they had a warrant for Johnny's arrest and that he was being charged for stealing a pickup truck. Charlotte was still confused by this, but she was even more confused when she heard the news reporters outside of her home stating that they had finally arrested someone for the murder of Sister Tadea. Charlotte listens to this and she's like, huh? Like why is the news outside my house reporting that Sister Tadea's killer has been found? She honestly didn't even think that they were speaking about Johnny, she was just more worried at the fact that neighbors and people in that community would hear this news and then would also see Johnny being arrested for stealing a pickup truck and think that he was the killer. Detectives took Johnny into the custody and then they brought him down to the police station for further questioning. Meanwhile, Charlotte says that she was back at home when all of a sudden she got a phone call from her sister. She picked up the phone and her sister was freaking out, saying that the news was accusing Johnny of being Sister Tadea's killer. Charlotte was like, what are you talking about? They just arrested him for stealing a pickup truck. And the sister was like, no, they arrested him and are accusing him of murdering the nun. Charlotte just couldn't believe this, because why did the police literally lie to her face? She asked them what they were doing and why they were arresting him and they just said it was for robbing a pickup truck, not for murder. She immediately grabbed her things and she rushed over to the police station to see what was going on. Moving over to Johnny's perspective, he was read his Miranda rights, and then he was interviewed alone and on video without a parent present. Now, in Texas, it is legal to interrogate a minor without a parent or guardian present or even an attorney present. So even though Johnny was 17 years old and underage, this was allowed. In his interview, Johnny denied having anything to do with the murder of Sister Tadea. His interview went on for a little bit over an hour, and that's when all of a sudden, a new detective entered the interrogation room and turned the camera off. Just 10 minutes after that, the detective left the room and said, we've got a confession that's pretty quick i mean other detectives were questioning johnny for over an hour and they were not able to get anything out of him but then this new detective just goes in and within 10 minutes and without the tape recording he gets a confession the detective said that he confronted johnny about the fact that they had found his fingerprints at the crime scene and that's when johnny just started to confess to everything but that halfway through his confession, he stated that he wanted a lawyer. As we know, once someone requests a lawyer, you are not legally allowed to ask this person any more questions, but that's not what happened in this case. After Johnny requested an attorney, another investigator entered the room and continued to question him about what happened that night, which again is not legal. Apparently, Johnny just confessed to him, and in the interview, detectives literally said, Oh, I thought you wanted an attorney." So they were literally acknowledging that Johnny's Miranda rights were being violated. Now, I do just want to reiterate that the cameras are still turned off during this confession, so there is no video record of this, but the detectives are adamant that this did happen and they actually typed out a confession for Johnny to sign, which is incredibly suspicious. Like, yes, vocally given confessions do count, but we really have no idea what happened in the 10 minutes that made Johnny say those things, or if he actually even said them, cause we literally have no official record of him saying this confession out loud. All we have is just a report that the police typed out after the fact. So Johnny's typed out confession said, quote, "'My name is Johnny Frank Garrett. "'I am 17 years old, "'and I live at 4,000 Northeast 18th "'in Amarillo with my mother.'" On October 31st, 1981, at approximately 1.30 a.m., I was drunk on whiskey and had taken two hits of acid. I had heard that some of the nuns kept nice stereos where they lived. I went over to the convent and knocked a window out on the bottom floor. I went upstairs and went into this one room. There was a nun in the bed, and she acted as if she was going to scream. I covered her mouth so that she couldn't make any noise. I started choking her until she passed out. Then I had sex with her. I left the convent the same way I came in." End quote. Now, detectives had this entire confession written out, but Johnny refused to sign this. He said that an officer would come up to him and say something and Johnny would say, quote, put it down. And then he would say something else and Johnny would say, quote, go ahead and put it down. Then the officer just told him, sign this. And then Johnny said, I ain't signing nothing. Now, I'm not sure what Johnny was referring to when he was asking the officer to, quote, put it down. Was he being threatened into giving or signing the confession? Or maybe he was asking the officer to lower his tone when he spoke to him. Either way, Johnny did not sign this confession. Now by this point, his mother arrived, she demanded a lawyer for Johnny, and when she was finally able to talk to him, she said that Johnny was just hysterical and he said that he didn't do it. Johnny and his mom reached out to multiple attorneys and apparently it seemed like none of them wanted to take him on as a client. But then a lawyer named Bill Cullis showed up to the station and told Johnny to not answer any more questions and said that he would be representing him. So in the end, Johnny just never signed that confession. However, the police were still not going to give up on him. They still had his fingerprint matched to the one found at the crime scene, and when they searched his home, they had found a steak knife that had exactly the same manufacture and design and had been used just as many times as a steak knife that they found in the convent's driveway. So it was part of a set, and the set belonged to Johnny or to his family. So to police, all of this evidence was connecting him to the crime. At Johnny's arraignment, he told the judge that he had been in The convent before and that he would actually go often his mom and his sister also both said that johnny was home the night of the murder so they were giving him an alibi but detectives just weren't buying it the judge also wasn't buying the alibi either and said that johnny would be going to trial johnny's attorneys filed a motion to move the trial location because everyone in town and nearby all knew about the case and would be biased because of the news coverage But the judge actually turned down the motion so that the trial would be happening in Amarillo. In the meantime, Johnny was sent to the Potter County Jail to await his trial. Jury selection started and of course everyone had pretty much heard about the case. On top of them all knowing about the case, there were also several conflicts of interest within the jury because some of them were friends with officers and one had even done business with the medical examiner. Now, normally the jury is selected in a way to make sure that they don't contain anyone who has any connections with anyone involved in the case. So it is just crazy that they would keep the trial in town. Like I feel like normally when a case gets so big, they move it to a new location because then the jury can be biased. So it is just crazy that they kept it in town and just had people on the jury that possibly could have heard about this and on top of that some of them were friends with police officers who could maybe tell them like hey trust me like this is a guy like you just never know what could be happening behind the scenes so i definitely think they should have moved it to a new location now once the jury was sorted out johnny's trial began in august of 1982 The prosecution called 18-year-old Lonnie Watley to the stand, and Lonnie was an inmate of the Potter County Jail where Johnny had been imprisoned before his trial. Lonnie testified that he had talked to Johnny in prison and at first he denied committing the crime. But eventually he opened up to Lonnie and admitted to breaking into the convent and killing Sister Tadea. Officers at Potter County Jail really trusted Lonnie and he had often offered them important information, so they took his statement seriously. So he was basically like, an informant for them like he had i don't want to say like ratted out but i guess like ratted out several other people in jail so that's why the officers like trusted what he was saying here is what lonnie's signed statement taken on may 13th said quote my name is lonnie dale Watley. i am 18 years old i am currently in the randall county jail for burglary i was a trustee in the potter county jail when johnny garrett was arrested On November of 1981, I was talking to Johnny about his case. At first, he wouldn't tell me what happened. I kept asking him if he did it, and he kept telling me no. Then finally, one night, he told me that he went over to the convent, but he didn't break in. Then, a few days later, we were talking about it, and he told me that John Malloy broke into the convent and killed her, and that he... Johnny, couldn't tell anyone because Malloy had threatened Garrett's family. A few days later, I asked him if he remembered anything about that night the nun was killed. He told me that he broke in and I asked him if he killed her and he said, yeah, man. Then he told me after it happened he went home and passed out on the couch i am willing to testify about this in court now i'm not sure who john malloy is maybe it's one of johnny's friends or like another inmate i'm not really sure so once lonnie testified the prosecution moved on to discuss what evidence had been found that linked johnny to the case Officer Stevens testified and said that one print taken from the knife under Sister Tadea's bed matched Johnny's left middle fingerprint, and another print on the headboard matched Johnny's left palm print. They also stated that a fingerprint taken from the headboard matched Johnny's left ring finger. Agent Goldsberry testified that the impressions on the window of the convent were made by a knife similar to the steak knife in the driveway. But he couldn't confirm that it was that knife that made those impressions. Goldsberry also brought up the fact that a similar steak knife was found in Johnny's home. Now, Johnny's defense attorney didn't call anyone to testify on his behalf. So that means that his mom and his sister, who said that they had an alibi for him, weren't called to testify. Which is odd, but part of me believes that maybe this just, like, isn't the strongest alibi... I mean, the only people that can confirm you were home is your mom or your sister. I just feel like most people wouldn't find that reliable because your family might lie for you. So maybe that's why they weren't called to the stand. Now, something also the defense didn't do is that they didn't call into question the psychic. I mean, remember, the only reason that police even stumbled upon Johnny and found a connection between him and the murder is because of the psychic. However, the defense attorneys didn't even really bring it up. It was also argued at the trial that the hair found inside the vacuum at the crime scene was consistent with Johnny's hair. But what they really meant is that it was consistent with any white Caucasian male. But they kind of just like played with the wording a little bit. Now, at the trial, the prosecution said that the hair had the same individual characteristics as Johnny's. But it also has the same characteristics as any other white male. As for Johnny's testimony, he said that two days before the murder on October 29th, he was drunk and high on LSD, wandering around looking for items to steal. He specifically wanted to steal a stereo. So he entered the convent through the front door shortly after 12, went into the medication room and into the cafeteria where he picked up the kitchen knife or the steak knife. He testified that he then went into several of the bedrooms. In one bedroom, he bent the knife and tried to open a locked drawer. He explained his fingerprints on the headboard of Sister Tadea's bed by stating that he grabbed the headboard so that he could lean over and reach across on the wall. After that, he said that he heard a noise in the convent, quickly got rid of the knife, and then fled. So he says that that happened two nights before Sister Tadea was killed. Johnny said that the night of the murder, he went to his mother's house at approximately 10.20pm on October 30th and did not leave the house until later the next morning. Based on Johnny's testimony, that places him at the scene of the crime two days before, not the day of. His lawyers argued that there was insufficient evidence to charge Johnny with the crime. The prosecution poked holes in all of Johnny's testimony with their witnesses. One of Johnny's neighbors testified that Johnny had stopped by his house at 11 p.m., so it was argued that his alibi wasn't true. Another neighbor testified to seeing him look into people's windows. The nuns also revealed that they usually kept the front door of the convent locked at all times of the day, so there's just no way that Johnny would be able to just walk in through the front door. And if he did, there was usually a nun in the front office who would have caught him. In addition to that, the nuns usually eat lunch between noon and 1 p.m., so they would have seen Johnny enter the cafeteria. They also revealed that none of the drawers in the convent had a lock and there was no report of a stuck drawer. So the account of Johnny trying to pry open the drawer just didn't make sense. The nuns also denied that Sister Tadea had a crucifix hanging over her headboard, which again, Johnny says that he was trying to steal. As the trial was getting to the end, the prosecution also brought up Johnny's bad reputation in the neighborhood and also the fact that he had been previously arrested for burglaries. Now, this case is a popular example where the jury used the, quote, exclusion of reasonable hypothesis, end quote, test to make their decision. So because all the evidence tying Johnny to the crime was circumstantial and not like direct evidence, the evidence had to be strong enough to counter any possible explanations of Johnny's innocence. A jury can choose to accept or not believe a testimony. Just because Johnny said that he didn't commit the crime or that his real intention was just a burglary does not mean that the jury has to accept it as a fact. Basically, that means that they have to decide if they believe the prosecutor's theory of what happened. This was just a lot. I mean, a lot of people seemed convinced that Johnny did do this, but he and his family were claiming that he was innocent. In fact, Johnny's mother, Charlotte, actually made a personal plea for mercy on Johnny's behalf by writing a character witness statement. She also kept stating that her son would never do something like this and that they had the wrong guy. But ultimately, on September 2nd, 1982, Johnny was found guilty for Sister Tadea's murder and was sentenced to death by injection. Surprisingly, the convent was not happy with this decision. Bishop L.T. Mathesian said that he believed taking a human life is wrong, regardless of the circumstances. He believed that instead of condemning criminals to die, we should address the root cause behind why violence like this happens in our society. Sister Viola said that they didn't rejoice in sentencing and that it was really painful to hear. She added that if Sister Tadea had been alive, she would have been the first one to forgive and pardon Johnny. Sister Bernice also spoke out and said that she's sure that Sister Tadea had forgiven Johnny, and so have all the other sisters at the convent. Johnny's lawyers filed a habeas corpus petition challenging the sentencing. Now, for those who don't know, a habeas corpus is a recourse in law that you, a person, can use to report an unlawful detention or imprisonment to a court and request that a court order the custodian of the person, usually a prison official, to bring the prisoner to court to determine whether the detention is lawful. So basically, the lawyer said that the sentencing was unlawful and that they wanted the court to reconsider. The petition was focused on five points. First, Johnny's team argued that no member of the jury that decided his fate was fundamentally against the death penalty. This meant that the jury lacked a well-rounded perspective about the issue. And remember, it's the jury that decides the death penalty, not the judge. Secondly, when Johnny asked to raise this issue, he was denied the assistance of his counsel. Third, Johnny's team said that the state had failed to provide enough evidence that would prove that Johnny was related to the crime. For example, no blood tests were conducted. There wasn't DNA at the time like there is now, but they did use to test for blood type back then. Fourth, they argued that Johnny was not put through a fair competency examination or evaluation before trial, and he was denied the use of his counsel for the same. And fifth, They argued that the jury charge was fundamentally defective as it convicted Johnny on very little proof less than the amount that had been alleged in the indictment. Because of this petition, Johnny couldn't be executed until a jury could thoroughly examine this. But in 1988, the jury reached the same conclusion it had before. They denied his petition and reaffirmed his death penalty sentence. Johnny was set to be executed on January 11th, 1992. So while Johnny was in prison between the years 1982, when he was first sentenced to 1986, he went through several psych evaluations by three different mental health experts. They found that Johnny was extremely mentally impaired chronically psychotic and brain damaged as a result of severe head injuries that he sustained as a child. In fact, one of the experts describes Johnny's case as one of the most virulent histories of abuse and neglect I have encountered in 28 years of practice. Now, Johnny's IQ was below 70 and he didn't learn to read until after the sixth grade. When Johnny was very young, he started being physically and sexually abused by his stepfathers. Once, he was even put on the burner of a stove, which obviously resulted in severe scarring. Johnny had also been human trafficked by them to their friends. At 14, one of Johnny's abusers forced him to make CP. So Johnny had to turn to alcohol and drugs at 10 years old to try and cope with everything that was happening to him. Johnny's drug use included brain-damaging substances such as pain thinners and amphetamines. Johnny was regularly beaten and abused, which caused his head trauma. The experts also said that Johnny had paranoid delusions and he wasn't really scared of the death penalty at all because his dead aunt came and talked to him in his cell and told him that she would save him from death. So Johnny was confident that the lethal injection would not kill him. And as a result of these evaluations, Johnny was diagnosed as being chronically psychotic. But one of the experts believed Johnny really had Dissociative Identity Disorder, commonly known as having split personalities. She believed this because this disorder can happen when someone deals with the level of trauma Johnny had, and apparently Johnny had told her about one of his alters. It's shocking that the details of Johnny's mental health were not brought to the jury when he was first tried. Especially because it didn't sound like he was even mentally fit to stand trial. If you remember, Johnny had supposedly confessed in the beginning, so let's talk about coerced confessions for a minute. A coerced confession is an involuntary confession, often resulting from overzealous law enforcement conduct instead of a suspect's free will. So... A suspect is forced to give a false confession after being put through torture or duress. It usually happens to people with a low IQ because they're more vulnerable and easy to manipulate. They cooperate more easily because they think that they're supposed to. And as we know, Donnie's IQ was below 70. And the reason that investigators have to keep the cameras on in interviews is to make sure that this type of coercion doesn't happen to people. And as we know, Johnny's camera was turned off before his confession. So, to a lot of people, it's clear that if Johnny really did confess, it was probably coerced. As the day of his execution got closer on January 3rd, 1992, his lawyers filed another habeas corpus petition. Johnny actually had a lot of support from the nuns of the convent, as well as the support from 16 Catholic bishops and the Catholic Diocese of Amarillo, who protested his sentencing. A lot Along with the human rights organization Amnesty International. One of Johnny's claims on this petition included the fact that he was mentally incompetent and should not be executed based on the standard set by Ford v. Wainwright, which is a rule that prevents the insane from being executed. One of his lawyers, Warren Clark, said that Johnny had multiple personality syndrome and that he thought Johnny was, quote, simply too crazy to kill. Johnny's sister, Janet, said that her brother didn't finish high school and that he had a history of petty crimes. He was always, quote, a little slow and was a follower, but he wasn't a killer. Pope John Paul II even spoke out for Johnny, and as a result, Governor Ann Richards granted Johnny a 30-day reprieve. It was the first time since Texas resumed executions in 1982 that a governor had intervened. On January 5th, 1992, the court granted Johnny a stay, meaning that they delayed his execution and they also issued a certificate of probable cause which is a certificate that is required for the defendant to appeal a guilty conviction in court. On January 6th, the prosecution argued that Johnny understands the nature of the proceedings against him and understands that he is going to be executed and why. So the Ford v. Wainwright rule does not apply in this case because, according to them, Johnny seems to be aware of what's going on and of sound mind. They said that even though he hoped that he would be saved by his aunt, he was not quote, so incompetent that the state can't execute him. Johnny was aware that when the needle went into his arm, his death was a possibility. So based on the prosecution's counter arguments, the court denied Johnny's petition once again and the stay over his execution was also lifted. The state of Texas executed 28-year-old Johnny on February 11th, 1992, and his last meal was ice cream. His last words were, quote, I'd like to thank my family for loving me and taking care of me, and the rest of the world can kiss my ass. Johnny Frank Garrett was gone. Before his death, he wrote several letters talking about his innocence, including one that was addressed to the media about his wrongful treatment of the justice system and his own lawyer. This is that letter. The first letter appears to be a one-page poem called Here I Am, Sitting in a Jail Cell. Johnny wrote, quote, Here I am sitting in jail for a crime someone else has done. I guess that I'm going to pay my dues, do the time I should have done for the other crimes I committed. Crimes that hurt people, hurt me. Yes, I've stole, hurt, cheated, hated, and went out for vengeance and love. But they've all been done on me. It goes on for another half page after that. The next letter is a page-long poem called Imprisonment and Johnny writes about getting up at 5.30 a.m. every day while his cellmates are asleep and watching the sunrise. He writes about the pain of being in jail and the fear of being stabbed while there. He wrote about the pain knowing that your loved one is selling their bodies just so you can have money in jail. Johnny again wrote that he's innocent, but he said that he speaks for everyone in jail, guilty or innocent. His last letter is several pages long and is addressed to the media and the press, but quote, mostly to you society. He said that he wasn't given the chance to prove himself innocent and that the trial lawyer he was given, VG Coleus, wasn't his lawyer, but a lawyer that was chosen for him by protectors, the Amarillo police. The letter said, quote, you judge me by his words, not mine. Johnny also wrote about two lawyers he had wanted and that the police didn't allow him to call either of these lawyers and basically told him that he had to have Coleus as his lawyer which isn't the case like you're allowed to pick your own lawyer. I don't know why they were denying him this right that he had. And Johnny also wrote that he later learned his nickname is quote cop out Coleus end quote. Johnny also named every single person who was involved in this case and wrote down their addresses. Now, Donnie's rights were definitely violated in this case, and whether the police thought he was guilty or not, he did deserve to be represented by who he wanted to in court. It does seem like police picked this lawyer for a reason maybe they knew that he would do them a favor of like pushing the trial through and making sure that johnny was found guilty so it seems like this lawyer wasn't working in favor of johnny but instead was working against him now reading these letters was very chilling i will have a link to them under my youtube video if you guys want to read them yourself we're gonna circle back on the list that he wrote about everyone involved in the case a little bit later in this video because some people believe that johnny cursed them now the state of Texas came under heavy criticism for allowing both a juvenile and a mentally handicapped individual to be executed. Johnny was the 44th killer put to death in Texas since the Supreme Court allowed the resumption of capital punishment in 1976. The total is the highest of any state. As of 2023, that number has risen to 578 and Texas continues to have the highest number in the country. The second highest is Oklahoma with 119 executions, so that's a pretty big difference. Not only was the state of Texas under heavy criticism, but so was Dr. Ralph Erdman, the doctor who did Sister Tadea's autopsy. In 1994, he was actually charged with corruption. The reason he was first investigated was because he had said that a man died of a cocaine overdose and his family was like no there's no way that that's true so they had his body exhumed and it was clear that no autopsy had ever been done on this body so the family had a private autopsy done and that's when they found out that Their loved one actually died of a heart attack, not because of a cocaine overdose, and they brought this information to investigators and to the public. So then all of the other autopsies that he has done were called into question and people were demanding that their loved one's bodies were exhumed and re-examined. And it was discovered that Dr. Ralph Erdman had falsified about a hundred of his autopsies. 100 like that's crazy it's not like he made small mistakes but he literally just completely lied or made up information it's just shocking like crimes went unsolved because of this man a father even went to jail because dr erdman said that his son had died from blunt force trauma and the father was convicted of his son's murder but then it was discovered that his son wasn't even murdered in the first place and had died of an accidental drowning. So even though he let murders go free and had people wrongfully incarcerated, Dr. Erdman was only sentenced to 10 years of probation and 200 hours of community service, which is just insane. Although he did mess up with so many autopsies, it was confirmed that the one that he did on Sister Tadea was in fact correct. Now, if you remember, Narni's murder seemed to be connected to Sister Tadea's. Well, after Johnny's arrest, it seemed like investigators just stopped looking into her case. They actually never charged Johnny with her murder or anyone else. That was until the year 2004, when police tested semen DNA from her bed sheet now that they had the technology to do that. And that DNA was a match to Leoncio. If you remember he was one of the original suspects in both of these cases the one who was caught naked looking into an elderly woman's window i know it's shocking like what this whole time police thought that narni's murder was connected to sister Tadea's murder because of how similar the crime was i mean both were older women a white t-shirt and black curly hair was found at both crime scenes The killer got in through a broken window. It is just crazy how similar they were, but now police are stating that they had two completely different killers. People were shocked by this. I mean, what are the odds that Leoncio and Johnny would leave similar things behind at the crime scene? So in 2004, Leoncio was currently in jail in New Mexico and detectives actually went down there to question him and arrest him for the murder of Narni. Now, he was also interviewed by Jesse Quackenbush, the director of The Last Word, which is a documentary about Johnny's wrongful conviction. And Leoncio said that he committed Narni's murder with Fernando Flores. And he says that Fernando was like kind of like the ringleader and that he remembers Fernando saying that he attacked and possibly murdered a nun around the same time. So we know that Leoncio's DNA was never tested in Sister Tadea's case and after his arrest, her case was not reopened. Jesse, the director of the documentary, demanded that prosecutors and investigators test the DNA, but the city of Amarillo said that they didn't even know what evidence still remained from the case. Johnny's mother also stepped in and threatened to sue for the wrongful death of her son if they didn't provide the evidence or at least preserve it. And in response, the city said that they would sue Johnny's mom if she tried to sue them. So no DNA was even tested. Loencio took a plea deal for the murder of Narni Bryson in exchange for 45 years, and in his deal, it says that he cannot be charged with any future crimes. I'm just so confused. I mean, it seems like detectives do believe that Loencio killed Sister Tadea, but they just don't want to admit that they convicted the wrong person. It's truly shocking and disturbing. Now let's circle back to the list that Johnny had made in one of his letters. He named all the people involved in this case and people believe that he put a curse on everyone who wronged him. This is because the people on this list started dying one by one. The first victim of what people call Johnny's curse was actually Dr. Ralph Erdman, who, as I said, was convicted of corruption and then his wife actually died of pancreatic cancer. Next was Johnny's attorney, Bill Collius, who Johnny had accused of acting on behalf of the police department. He also died of pancreatic cancer. Kathy Jones, who was a reporter for NBC, had chased Johnny's mother into the courthouse bathroom after she broke down when Johnny got his guilty verdict and she literally shoved a camera over the stall and died in a plane crash. The judge in Johnny's trial and another lawyer in the case were diagnosed with the same rare type of leukemia. Two officers that were part of the task force were also diagnosed with leukemia. One member of the jury named Novella Summer fell down a flight of stairs and died. Another jury member's daughter had a freak accident with a gun and she was shot in the head and also his sister was run over by a car. Lonnie, the guy that I mentioned from jail that like snitched on Johnny, Took his own life. Johnny's school teacher who testified against him at his trial also took their own life. The district attorney, Danny Hill, became an alcoholic and a drug addict. And then in 1995, he took his own life as well. Then Danny's youngest daughter also committed suicide by hanging. Now, all of this could just be a coincidence, but a lot of people feel like maybe this is like karma. Like, what are the odds that Johnny put these people on a list and then they started dying one by one in very like mysterious and just odd ways? In 2008, an Amarillo attorney, Jesse Quackenbush's documentary about Johnny Johnny, called The Last Word, came out. The documentary criticizes the district attorney for being death penalty obsessed and calls a medical examiner his lapdog. The documentary also shines light on the fact that investigators used this case as an opportunity to further their own careers. It showed that the media was bloodthirsty, that Johnny's defense lawyers were incompetent, and how religious zealots quote, witch-hunted Johnny. In this documentary, they speak with Charlotte, they speak with detectives, they speak with Johnny's neighbors, etc. I think that you can watch this documentary on DVD only. I'm not sure, but I will link their website in the description of my YouTube video. So with that being said, let's go over the evidence that proved that Johnny did not murder Sister Tadea. Before Johnny's trial, he tried contacting his attorneys, but he was never able to speak to them. His mom was able to get them on the phone and they said that this case is hopeless because of the evidence. But clearly these attorneys just didn't do their job. After Johnny was arrested, investigators went through his belongings and found that he had several crucifixes and jewelry with the crucifix on it, which confirmed Johnny's story of breaking into the convent two days before sister Tadea's death and stealing from them. The FBI also tested Johnny's hair to the ones found at the crime scene on the ground and they said that this was inconclusive. So that's definitely not a match, which is what was said at the trial. The hair collected at the scene also came from a vacuum, so I'm not even sure how they were able to use that as evidence. What's also shocking is that the jury never even heard about the black curly hair that was found at the crime scene, which I feel like is just shocking because that would literally just kind of prove that like Johnny didn't do this. He did not have black curly hair, so it's crazy that they didn't mention that. The hair found in Sister Tadea's mouth was also not a match to Johnny and obviously came from her real killer. Johnny told his mom that not only did he never confess to Lonnie, who again is the guy from jail who testified at Johnny's trial. But Johnny says that he never even spoke to this guy. In fact, Johnny said that they never even met as their cells were on opposite sides of the jail. So maybe Lonnie lied for his own benefit. Unfortunately, Johnny's attorneys never even asked Lonnie about how he would have met Johnny. They never even asked Johnny for his side of that during the trial. So again, they just didn't do a good job. The jury also never heard about the two white shirts found at the scene in Narnie's case or in Sister Tadea's case. They also didn't hear about the man that was seen running away from the convent that night which is crazy because that is literally crucial information why was that withheld from the trial Bishop Leroy Mathesian, who was the bishop at the convent at the time, said that it was true that Johnny used to frequent the convent and that he actually knew Johnny. The bishop said that Johnny would come into the convent, ask about the art and the crosses, and before the murder, Johnny had come in and helped them move furniture in every single one of the nun's bedrooms. So that's why his fingerprints were found there. There was also an unidentified set of fingerprints found in Sister Tadea's room, so there weren't just Johnny's fingerprints. Now let's talk about the knife under Sister Tadea's bed. It was a bent butter knife and the FBI confirmed that it wasn't the murder weapon because the only thing found on it was mustard. And they knew this before the trial started. And that also adds up with johnny's story of trying to use a knife to open a drawer the steak knife found in the driveway also wasn't the murder weapon because it had no biological matter on it basically meaning no blood no skin nothing so it seems like johnny didn't actually have any connection to a murder weapon A nun had testified that there was no cross over Sister Tadea's bed, but there is one in the crime scene photo, so that part is a little bit confusing. Johnny's family took all of his clothes in to be tested, and it was determined that none of them even had blood on them. Also, in Johnny's, quote, confession, he said that he left through the window, which alone proves that he didn't even know the details of the crime in 2014 johnny's family made a petition to clear his name from sister Tadea's murder johnny's sisters gina and janet say that they are hoping to clear their brother's name gina said quote he's not a monster that is the worst i have ever heard somebody call johnny garrett he's a monster end quote both sisters truly believe that leoncio the man convicted for the murder of Narni, is the true killer of sister Tedea. I mean, Sister Tadea and Narni were killed in such a similar way, so he did do this. Johnny's family attorney, Jeff, also spoke out and said, quote, I'm not saying that he didn't break in there. I'm not even saying that he didn't murder the nun. But what I am saying is that he was not guilty of raping her, and I will always be convinced of that. I think that now if we're able to use the science that we have with DNA testing, I think he would be exonerated of that crime. Janet says that she will continue to fight to have her brother's name cleared. She said, quote, thirty years later, oh my god, it's a long time. It's a long time, but I'll be here in forty years too, still crying for his name to be cleared. That's all I want, end quote. Wow, I know that was a lot. It's honestly disturbing how the police and the court system handled this case, starting from listening to the psychic, to turning off the camera in Johnny's interrogation room, to ignoring evidence, to everything. So many mistakes were made and it honestly seemed like police had tunnel vision. You know, they were under pressure to solve this case and to make the community feel safe again. So they were willing to solve this case no matter what. The fact that they don't even want to test Leoncio's DNA to the DNA found on sister Tadea says everything. People wonder, you know, if they're so confident in their conviction, why don't they just do the test to prove everyone wrong? Now, speaking of the psychic, what in the world happened with that? Why wasn't she brought in as a witness to the trial? It's just crazy how the police actually followed this lead. Now, there was a movie made about Johnny Garrett. It's a horror-slash-thriller movie called Johnny Frank Garrett's Last Word, and the movie was released in 2016. So, of course, some parts of the movie are very dramatic, but the family says that they were okay with this movie being made. They figure that the more Johnny's story is distributed, that hopefully the more impact it might have in helping the system along. One of his sisters said, quote, Some people might not like it, some people will like it, but I like the fact that total strangers put their time and effort into Johnny Garrett. That's all we're trying to do is keep his name out there so that not only the public can judge it, end quote. They said that they just want one thing for him, to not be forgotten ever, for him to always be remembered as Johnny Frank Garrett, the one that was executed wrongfully. I don't know if you guys have seen the movie Primal Fear, but as I was researching this case, I was reminded so much of that movie Primal Fear is about this 19-year-old boy named Aaron who is accused of murdering an archbishop. Detectives claim that he snuck into the house, but Aaron denied these allegations. A really fancy lawyer steps in and decides to defend Aaron pro bono because he truly believes that Aaron is innocent and that the police got the wrong guy. I won't spoil the movie for you guys, but I found a lot of similarities between the movie and the murder of Sister Tadea. At the end of the day, a kind, caring, and innocent person was murdered. Sister Tadea did not deserve this. I still don't understand how someone could do this to an innocent old lady, to a nun. It's just so unfortunate, and it's sad how, in a way, she has never received justice for this. I would love to know what you guys think about this case. If you're part of the hashtag AudioFamilia, thank you so much for being here and for listening to today's episode. If you go watch the video version later on my channel, make sure to leave me a comment letting me know that you're from the hashtag AudioFamilia. But That is pretty much all the information I have for today's video. Thank you guys so much for being here and for taking the time to listen to what happened to Sister Tadea Benz. If there's ever any other cases you want me to cover, also leave me a comment under my YouTube video or send me a message on Instagram. Don't forget to follow, rate, and review What Happened wherever you get your podcasts and subscribe to my channel, True Crime Jackie, on YouTube for full video episodes. You can also find me on Instagram and on TikTok at True Crime Jackie. Bye guys!